Hi, Journey. It's what we call summit season around our church, which means that we're gearing up for the Global Leadership Summit hosted at the Commons Thursday and Friday, August 9 and 10, which is just around the corner, believe it or not. And you're all invited to be a part of this high-octane, two-day, best-of-the-best leadership intensive featuring some of leadership's brightest stars. Condoleezza Rice will be there, Jim Collins, William Uri, Patrick Lencioni, Bill Hybels, as well as a bunch of other great leaders. But I want you to feel that more than just a casual invitation to be at another event, our hope for you, our hope for our entire church really, is that every single one of us feels compelled to be equipped to be the best leaders we possibly can be in all the places God has given us influence. We just wrapped up our study through the book of Romans, you remember. But I want to call us back there for just a moment. Romans chapter 12 verse 8 says this, If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. Paul's commending us there, isn't he? That we're to be squeezing our leadership influence for all it's worth for Christ's sake. Take it very, very seriously, he says. And there's something really very serious about thousands of leaders gathering together in the name of Christ, in the name of amping up their leadership ability where God shows up and God speaks to hearts and people hear from God and decisions are made and the church of Jesus Christ is built up and his mission goes forth with increased fervor and clarity and the world changes, doesn't it? Lives change one by one by one and God's kingdom comes right here on earth. And so much more than just a sterile two-day leadership conference, the Global Leadership Summit is a chance for you to be inspired, for you to hear from God about His plans for your leadership influence, where you live and where you work and where you go to school and where you recreate. So will you please get there? Please get signed up like today. Block the days, close the shop if you have to, invite your staff team, invite your business partner to what will absolutely be two fantastic days of serious leadership development, very serious leadership development. And one thing we like to do to give you an extended taste of what the Global Leadership Summit is about is experience a past summit session together, which we have the privilege of doing today. John Ortberg is one of America's finest pastors. His heart for equipping the body of Christ for the mission of Christ is unmatched. A few years back, John spoke on the matter of a leader's greatest fear. It's a talk that's still reverberating inside of my soul, and I want you to experience it for yourself. So please, settle in, and let's hear from John right now, a leader's greatest fear. How many of you involved in leadership here have ever been criticized? Just show of hands. How many of you work at a church where criticism is the number one spiritual gift? tell you, one of my favorite definitions of leadership these days, one of my favorite ones is from a Harvard guy named Ron Heifetz. Leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand. <laughs> leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can stand. Leader's greatest fear, though, I think is none of these. Failure, mutiny, criticism, disappointing people, they're all on a leader's list. But none of them is fatal. All of them are recoverable. They're not the greatest fear. I think a leader's greatest fear is not something that might happen to us. It is something that can happen in us. And I want to talk with you 
in this session about what is or what I think should be a leader's greatest fear. A leader's greatest fear. Some time ago, I went on a retreat, and it was um, uh, a retreat just for men to kind of discover the wild inner hairy warrior that is deep within you. And um, mine was real deep. And one of the topics was how we were created for a mission. Leaders love to think about mission, love to cast vision for a mission, love to strategize about mission, love to achieve mission, love to celebrate mission. But this particular speaker said something that stuck with me. He said that if we don't embrace our true mission, we all have what this speaker called a shadow mission. We all have a shadow mission. We are all tempted to let our lives center around something that is unworthy, something that is selfish, something that is dark. And we all thought of how easily a life can deteriorate into the pursuit of a shadow mission, how it can just kind of drift into being centered around something that is dark or unworthy or self-centered. And it can happen to the people who attend our churches. It can happen to whole congregations. It can happen to companies. It can happen to nations. It can happen to leaders. And what I want to do for what remains in this talk is to walk through a story in the Bible, the story of a woman named Esther. Because this story is a story of characters that were given a choice between a mission and a shadow mission. And people choose, and destinies get formed, and the world gets changed. Everybody has a choice. This is the way the book of Esther begins. Many of you know this story. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to the Nile. Now the author wants us to understand that King Xerxes was a man of immense power, but he was preoccupied with showing off his greatness. He, in fact, had no inner strength of character at all. He had no vision to die for. And he constantly needed other people to help him make up his mind. The first time we see him is at a banquet for noblemen. There are three banquets in the first chapter of Esther alone. One of the ways to divide the book up is it's a series of banquets, of parties. And it says, For 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Six months of serious partying. And then when that was done, he throws another party for the whole capital, open to the common people so that they'll be overwhelmed. The text says that wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink by the flagon. No restrictions, no restraint, unlimited, and everyone in goblets of gold different than any other one. Now, there's a third banquet that's being thrown for the women. It's thrown by Queen Vashti. This, this banquet features no excesses, no juvenile behavior. By contrast, it looks quite restrained. She looks quite mature. Then we're told on the seventh day, the king, when the king was merry with wine, when the king was merry with wine, he sent for the queen Vashti. 
He had been showing off his possessions. Now, as the leader, he wanted to show off his ultimate possession. What do you think he wanted to show them about Queen Vashti? Think he wanted to show them her brains have her come and do math problems? Or her personality lead a lively discussion of the decline of the Babylonian Empire? No, it says in verse 11, He called her in order to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. You imagine the humiliation involved for the subject of this leader. And then in verse 12, an extraordinary thing happens. Vasti says, no. Come parade myself before a Croizen mob after seven days of Miller time? I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'll stay home and wash my hair. Thank you anyway. Now, how does the king respond to this? Oh, you're right. That would be horribly awkward. I understand. Sorry I mentioned it. Not so much. Verse 12b. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Because, see, she was threatening his shadow mission. She was threatening his shadow mission. She was making him look weak. And that always provokes a deeply emotional response. And so, it's quite a funny part of the details. A lot of irony in the book of Esther. We're told that he, the king, the most powerful man in the land, consults the sages who knew the law. The sages who knew the law kind of the Supreme Court. Most powerful guy in the world can't control his wife. So he turns to the Supreme Court, makes it a matter of state. What am I going to do about my wife? She just washed her hair. I can't do a thing with her. Um, If word gets out about this, he says, then all the wives will rebel against all their husbands. All the wives will get out of control. And so these sages tell him to issue a royal order that Vashti is not to be allowed to come before the king anymore. That's going to be her punishment, which is probably not going to break her heart because that's what she wasn't doing in the first place. And then they tell him, get a new king. And they say this in verse 20. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout his vast and magnificent realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Yeah, that'll happen. Now, part of what's going on here is the writer showing us what flatterers these advisors are. They say to him, throughout the king's realm, and how vast and magnificent that realm is. See, they all know that his shadow mission is ego, appearance, and pleasure. Make make my kingdom about me. But they won't name it. But they won't challenge it. For the king has surrounded himself with people, but the king has surrounded himself with people who will reinforce his shadow mission. I was thinking about this when Colin Powell was talking about probing the organization. The higher you rise in an organization, the less truth you are likely to hear. The higher you rise in an organization, the less truth you're likely to hear about the organization and, by the way, about you. And one of the signs that the shadow mission is taking over is that people underneath the leader become more concerned about the leader's perception of reality than they are about reality itself. They're more concerned about the leader's slant on truth than they are truth itself. The shadow mission of the organization 
becomes to placate or appease or impress the leader. Xerxes has some people who will reinforce his shadow mission. And so he decides to get a new queen. And now he is advised in the selection process by what are called the king's servants. The king's servants are not the Supreme Court, not the sages who knew the law. Literally, the king's servants are youths. They're like bodyguards, high testosterone young men who give him their idea of what to look for in a new queen. Anybody want to guess what their number one criteria is going to be? They suggest he hold a Miss Medes and the Persians beauty contest (laughs) where every province would contribute one finalist to the royal harem. This actually happened. Anybody remember how many provinces there were? 127. It's a large harem. And in the end, they say, the girl who pleases the king would become like the ultimate trophy wife. And one of the contestants is a young girl, a young Jewish girl named Esther. She was an orphan. She had been adopted and raised by her cousin Mordecai. And we're told that she was fair and beautiful. And she makes it through the prelims and is one of the finalists selected to go before the king. And so this young, obscure, orphan Jewish girl goes in, all this pressure, all over the country. And Esther wins. And Esther pleases the king. And Esther is made the queen. And her apparent mission, her apparent mission, what anybody around her would have understood... Her mission now was to be eye candy for the most powerful man on earth. And the king throws another party, and Esther lives happily ever after, right? Not so much. There's another character in this story. Uh, His name is Haman, and he is Xerxes' chief of staff. He is a much stronger leader than Xerxes is. But he too has a shadow mission. He is mortally offended because there is one man who will not bow down and give him worship. And that one man is named Mordecai. And he's Esther's guardian. Haman is so offended by this man, by this lack of someone bowing down to, as the old King James translation would say, to give him worship. He's so offended by this that he goes into King Xerxes and offers him an enormous bribe. It's actually a, a huge sum of money. It's like the, the amount of money that all of the other countries controlled by Persia at that time would be sending in if he could be allowed to destroy Mordecai and Mordecai's people. And the king, in typical fashion, because this is this leader, the king's response basically, okay, whatever, doesn't even know which group of people it is. Because when you have a leader who has become seduced by a shadow mission, he is not likely to challenge the shadow mission of anybody else as long as it serves his. Okay, whatever. When word of this reaches Mordecai, he realizes that only one person can save Israel. Esther. The harem girl. The beauty queen. And he goes, sends word, charges Esther to go to the king to save her people, to have that kind of courage. When I think about approaching Xerxes, she says to Mordecai, my palms get sweaty, my mouth gets dry. Now, many friends would stop there. I understand. I get it. 
about Mordecai. Mordecai is going to challenge her. He says in chapter 4, Do not think, Esther, that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And in these fabulous words, And who knows, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther, the fate of a whole nation, the fate of the people of God, the fate of God's dream to redeem the world in human terms, at least as far as we can see it right now, rests in your hands. You have not been brought to this point in your life for the sake of accumulating an exquisite wardrobe and precious gems and exotic fragrances. You have not been brought to this point in your life to become the most desirable, attractive, applauded woman in the kingdom. You have not been brought to this point in your life for any of the reasons that the king thinks you have. You have been brought to this point to work for justice and to spare people a great suffering. You have been brought to this point to oppose a man who is vile and evil and supremely powerful. You have a mission, Esther, and your mission matters. You have been brought to this point in your life, not for yourself at all, but to be a part of God's plan to redeem the world. So Esther, do not let your success at filling society's shadow mission for women blind you to what God says your mission really is. She asked him to gather all of God's people in Susa for three days of fasting and prayer. She refuses to try to achieve this mission based on her beauty and her cleverness and her influence, though they are great, though they are great. And it may raise this question for you or for your team. When's the last time you had an extended period of prayer? Maybe fasting and prayer. To ask God for clarity and courage about the mission that he's called you to. For you have been called to your position for such a time as this. She says to Mordecai, when this is done, I will go to the king. Even though it is against the law. And then she responds with words that are as magnificent in their courage as Mordecai's were in their challenge. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Get out of heart. And by the way, and just by the way, in a day where writers, even in our day, sometimes Christian writers, say that a woman's highest aspiration is to be a beauty rescued by a man. I find it ironic that one of the great heroes of the Bible is a woman who rejects the stereotype of the beauty queen, who subverts her dim bulb husband, who puts on a clinic of courage, initiative, and emotional intelligence, and rescues all the men in the story. And just by the way, if you are a woman and God gifted you to lead for God's sake, for the church's sake, for the sake of the sorry dark world, lead. Now, I want to pause at this point in the story for a few questions for all of us. And the first one is this, just for you personally, what's your shadow mission? What is your shadow mission? Where is it that apart from the help of God, just your own depravity, 
that sinful nature that's a part of every one of us will drift to on its own. Have you ever named it? Do you know what it is? I can tell you my shadow mission in four words and I've known it since I was 12 years old. I used to do some speaking when I was a little kid in our hometown and there was an article one time that came out and and the headline on it was Talkative Boy Wins Acclaim. And I know apart from God's help my life will be an exercise in self-idolatry and winning approval. I know it's a battle that I fight and it's not like something that I identify and get done with it. It's a battle I fight every day and I will fight it the rest of my life. And people I love get hurt by it. Everybody has a shadow mission. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Take this fruit and your eyes will be open and you will be like God. For Solomon, it was pleasure. For Jonah, it was escape. For Pilate, it was abdicating responsibility. For a character named Simon, Simon the sorcerer, he's called in Acts chapter 8, His shadow mission was having a spectacular ministry. Remember, he's the one that wanted to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter so that he could do what Peter was doing. It looked like a good thing. It looked like it was going to help the church have a spectacular ministry. See, part of what makes the shadow mission so tempting is that it's usually so closely related to our gifts and passions and wiring. It's not like it's 180 degrees off track. It's just like maybe 10 degrees off track, but that 10 degrees is in the direction of hell. And then a calling gets hijacked by my ego and my wounds. The shadow mission is my authentic mission hijacked by my ego and my wounds. And there's no Jesus in it. But if you don't know it, if you don't name it, if you don't share it with the people around you, it's very hard to fight it. Next question. What is the shadow mission of your church, of your organization? Because see, groups of people have shadow missions. In Jesus' day, Rome had a shadow mission. That was to build an empire. In Jesus' day, Israel had a shadow mission, and that was just to be exclusive, to be a little enclave. Israel was unique in having a string of people who called it away from its shadow mission. They were called prophets, and they were not popular people. And Jesus, one of the reasons that he died was he got stuck in the crosshair of a lot of shadow missions. What's the shadow mission of your organization? The church that I serve is a couple of miles away from Stanford and kind of in the heart of Silicon Valley. And the staff there named it Shadow Mission years before I ever got there, just by nature of where it is. They didn't use the phrase Shadow Mission, but that's really what they were describing. They would sometimes joke about the motto of the church, if we went wrong, being this, a successful church for successful people. And you want to think about how dark that is. You think about telling Jesus, that's our mission. A successful church for successful people. Make us feel good. And I was imagining what would happen if the signs of our shadow missions were out in front of our churches. 
and on our stationery. We may not be growing, but we'll judge churches that are. <laughs> Successfully avoiding conflict since 1893. If you had to name your church's shadow mission, what would it be? And I hope sometime this weekend, over the next day or so, your team will have a chance to wrap your arms around that one. Next question. Who is Mordecai in your life? Who is Mordecai in your life? Who loves you enough to challenge you when you're ready to settle for your shadow mission? If you're part of an elder board or a leadership team, whether it's at your church or company or so, do you have regular, honest, fearless conversations about the reality of your shadow mission? If you are in the leadership position on that team, do you model this? Do you initiate it? If you are a leader and you do not know your shadow mission, I will guarantee you one thing. You're the only one on your leadership team who does not know your shadow mission. Everybody else knows it. And they talk about it. Esther had a Mordecai. And that changed everything. On the third day, she put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court and she waited for the king. You got to understand the drama of this moment. She does not know if she will have another one. Life or death are hanging in the balance. And the king sees her and her heart's in her throat. Not an easy thing to do stand up to a shadow mission. And the king reaches out the golden scepter and she'll live, at least for the moment. And the king says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even if it is half the kingdom, I will give it to you. Okay, now, that's really, you have to understand the culture of that day. That's like king talk for what do you want? I'm in a good mood today. Okay? <laughs> If she'd have said, okay, I'll take half the kingdom, his tune would have changed real quickly. This is more along the lines of, would you like to be in charge of the remote control tonight? Something along those lines. Okay? Because you have to understand the challenge. Sometimes people read through the Bible and don't quite get what a phrase like that's about. You have to understand the challenge that she faces. And that for Esther, as you will see, and for you and me, courage is indispensable. It's not enough. Her just savvy, her street smarts in this story are unbelievable. Esther, what do you want? I'm in a good mood, okay? She can't say, I want to take half the kingdom. So what she does say is, I'm having a party. Uh, I'd like for you and Haman to come. The king has never turned out a party in his life. <laughs> so they come, and they have a great time. And the king says a second time, Esther, what do you want? Even up to half the kingdom, it's yours. And Esther says, if the king regards me with favor, if the king wishes to grant my request. This verbal skill is remarkable. If the king regards me with favor, if the king wishes to grant my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet I shall prepare tomorrow, and I will answer the king's request. Yet Esther's skill here, 
phenomenal. The king, by agreeing to come, has almost already agreed to her request. Her boldness, her intelligence, her timing. So much of leadership is timing. Her timing are breathtaking. And we're ready now for the climax of the story. But the author is going to leave us in suspense for a moment. And he switches back to this man, Haman. Haman's very excited about what's going on. Haman's all puffed up in his spirit. People get that way sometimes. And he gathers together his wife and his friends, and he lists all of these honors and all of his achievements and all of his wealth, and it's all really good. And then he says, but all this does me no good as long as I see Mordecai sitting at the gate. Haman had a shadow mission, and I mention this because many, many people in your church face this one. Everybody faces one. Many people in your church face this one. It's maybe the great shadow mission of our society, and it's called more. More wealth, more power, more applause, more status, more honor, more. And Haman goes through his life thinking, if he could just get more one day, that'd be enough. That'd be enough. One indicator that you're on a shadow mission is a chronic sense of soul dissatisfaction. A chronic sense of soul dissatisfaction because shadows can never satisfy the soul. A little burst of gratification every once in a while. But it never brings about deep contentment. People who live for more discover it never brings contentment. I can prove that with a single question. Who is more content, the man with a million dollars or the man with 12 children? The correct answer is the man with 12 children because he doesn't want any more. But we live in a society where people are bombarded all day by the shadow mission. They're sold it. And if you're a leader, one of the questions you have to face is, will you have the courage to name and challenge the shadow mission of the people that you lead? Will we have the courage to name and challenge the shadow mission of the society in which we live? Nobody does that for Haman. His wife plays into it for him. She has an idea. She suggests that Haman build a gallows. You think about this. She suggests Haman, because he's powerful enough, he can do it, that he build a gallows 75 feet high, gallows 75 feet high, and have Mordecai hanged on it. Meanwhile, that same night, the king cannot sleep. And he asks his servants to read to him, because the king doesn't read to himself. And um, so he asked them to read a book called The Annals of the King. Guess who it's about? <laughs> they say, what do you want us to read to you? And he says, let's read that book about me. <laughs> and they do. He is a source of endless fascination to himself. <laughs> and as they're reading through this book, again, the decision to read the book is his decision. It is an expression of his shadow mission but someone else is at work. Someone is lurking behind the scenes through every sentence in this book as someone is working and lurking behind every moment of your life and mine. 
They read to him from the book about him a story about a time that Mordecai, the same Mordecai who was a relative of Esther, saved the king's life from an assassination plot. And, and they realize, and the king realizes, Mordecai's never been honored, never been thanked. The next day, Haman arrives at the king's. And Haman knows nothing about that reading from the king's book. And the king preempts Haman with a question. The king says to Haman, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman says, this is chapter 6, verse 6. And you picture this as a play. This is like a stage whisper. This is like an aside to the audience. Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Okay, now if there's ever a picture of pride goeth before a fall, this is it. Haman says, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crown placed on its head. Even that horse wears a crown. Let one of the king's most noble princes lead the horse through the streets, proclaiming, Thus it shall be done, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, for the man whom the king delights to honor. We all know who that is. Now imagine this moment. The king says, Yeah, that's good. That's a good idea. All right, the man to honor is Mordecai. Haman, you pull the horse. Good idea. And now it's all downhill very quickly for Haman. Esther holds another banquet and tells the king the story that she and her people are about to be destroyed. The king says, who? She says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman ends up being hung on the very gallows that were built for Mordecai. And Esther reminds the king that the edict still stands against her and her people. And the king invites Esther to write the new state policy. And the ring that had been given to Mordecai, to to Haman, goes instead to Mordecai, and Mordecai becomes the new chief of staff. And Israel becomes so favored that we're told at the end of the book, many people of other nationalities committed themselves to the God of Israel. All because one man was willing to name reality. Who knows but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. And one woman said no to a shadow mission of safety and security and yes to following God. A vision to die for. And if I perish, I perish. Now it's our day. You are where you are. You have been given what you have been given for a reason. And it may not be as dramatic, may not look as dramatic as that of Esther and Mordecai or Xerxes and Haman, but it is eternal. And it matters in the cosmic balance. And there's a lot of fears that leaders have to deal with, but there's only one that is not recoverable, and that's the one that happens inside. I wonder if you've come to grips with your shadow mission. And I was thinking as I thought about this topic that Jesus, who is our model in every other area, I believe is our model here as well. 
You know, the Bible, the scriptures say that Jesus became like us, was tempted like us in every way, but without sin. And I think Jesus faced a shadow mission. And I think it's very instructive for us. I think the shadow mission for Jesus was to be the leader without suffering, was to be the Messiah without a cross. F.F. Bruce, great New Testament scholar, said time and time again, the temptation came to Jesus from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling his calling than the way of suffering and death. Time after time, some less costly way. And you know, in the desert, the evil one tempts him to achieve his mission without hunger. Turn these stones to bread. You don't need to be hungry. Without pain. Throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will bear you up. Without opposition. Bow down before me and all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to hurt. You don't have to be opposed. Later on, you remember this story, when he tells the disciples that his calling is to suffer and die for his mission, Peter tries to convince him that this suffering, this death, is unnecessary. This is precisely the same shadow mission that Jesus faced from the evil one in the desert. And that is why Jesus rebukes Peter so sharply. Remember what he says, get behind me. Satan, he's heard that temptation before. And this goes on through his life. We don't even know. We don't even know. The anguish and the agony it caused him in his soul all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is wrestling with this one final time, causing the sweat like drops of blood to come off him. Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me, not this. Even when he's hanging on the cross and people go past him and they're jeering him, what are they doing? It's the same temptation. Look at him. He saved others. He can't save himself. Why didn't you come down if you're the Messiah? There's no such thing as a Messiah that comes with a cross. He stares a shadow in the face. at a cost we will never understand, not for all eternity. He says, no. I will suffer. I will take all of the shadow of the dark fallen human race on myself. I will go to the cross. I will drink the cup to its last drop. He does that for us. Not my will, but thine be done. Because see, our little lives, our little missions, are part of a much bigger mission. They are part of God's great mission that has been sealed by something far more powerful than our skills and intelligence. It's part of what's going on behind the scenes in this book of Esther. Esther, some of you know, is the only book in the Old Testament that never mentions the word God. But the reality is, he's the main character in the story. There is a law that is unalterable in the story. There is a will that will not be turned, but it ain't the law of the Medes and the Persians. 
How is it that of all the women in the empire, a Jewish girl named Esther become queen? How is it that of all the people in the empire, Mordecai should be the one that saves the king from an assassination plot? How is it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman had built a gallows for Mordecai? That of all the stories the one read to him was of Mordecai saving his life. How is it that Haman, the scheming murderer, becomes the victim of his own schemes? That Mordecai, his intended victim, becomes instead his replacement? How did the king's ring given to Haman end up on Mordecai's finger? How did the noose intended for Mordecai end up around Haman's neck? How is it that the people who mark the Jews for destruction are themselves destroyed? The writer wants us to know that even in the exile as they were then, no Jerusalem, no temple, no Sanhedrin, God is present, unseen, unnamed. He is at work behind the scenes, and His purpose is certain. You lead without fear because behind you always, behind me always, God is at work in unseen, unknown, unnamed, unlikely ways in mangers and deserts and Gethsemane gardens and crosses and in this funny, difficult, glorious invention called the church. Who knows? But that you have come to your position for such a time as this. And I want to give us all a moment now to respond to God. I'm going to ask Greg and the team if they would come out. Greg's going to sing a song that speaks very, very deeply to the heart in a moment. I was thinking about this just this week. This event and the leaders gathered at it. And I remembered a friend of mine who was at the summit a year ago. And his church was growing and they were taking new ground and they had wonderful plans and the staff was excited. But the hidden reality was there was a shadow mission that had a grip on him. And there were people close to him who suspected. There were little signs and warning lights going off, but nobody said anything. Nobody tried anything. And he's not here today. And it didn't take me any effort or any time at all to think of a second leader that I knew, and a third. We all face a shadow mission, every one of us. And sometimes they become public scandals, and that's an awful thing, although there is grace on the other side of that. Sometimes they don't become public, they become dark and hidden and in some ways I think that may be even more insidious and destructive and I thought some of you are here and you are headed down a road that if you keep going down it it will only be a matter of time and this could be a moment that turns it around and I I just want to plead with you God's got surgery to do in your heart would you just open it up as wide as you can I thought some of you will be here and there are shadow mission issues that you face as a team or a church or a family or a team member and you've been avoiding naming it. Maybe because you don't have proof. Maybe because you weren't sure. Probably because you're afraid. 
And the longer it goes on, the harder it is to name it. And there's all that embarrassment because you haven't named it all this time, so why would you bring it up now or so? Too many churches, too many leaders, too many ministries get damaged, too many get destroyed. Too often the name of Christ is dragged through the mud because somebody was afraid to speak the truth. Don't be that somebody who was afraid. Just tell God in this moment, God, I will speak the truth in love. I may not do it well. Help me to do it the best that I can. I will do it. Would you bow your heads wherever you are right now? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for giving each of us a mission, for putting us where we are for such a time as this. Protect us, Father, from that shadow that is our greatest enemy. We pray, as Jesus taught us to pray so long ago, as followers of him have been praying for so many centuries, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.